Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Okay, friends, so today I have Drew Carpenter on the podcast. Drew is a friend of mine. He's a fellow pastor, and uh, he serves at Koinos Church, and he runs the Obscure Pastor podcast, which I highly recommend you go check it out, subscribe, like, rate, and review his podcast. It's a great podcast. Listen to it. Some really good interviews on there. He interviewed me even. Uh, so, uh, But there's all kinds of other better interviews on there than mine. <laughs> um, but no, Drew's a great guy. And we talked through uh, various things, a lot of different things. Uh, we talked a lot about politics um, and really just the intersection, I think, of evangelicalism and the church as being pastors in the midst of all of this. And uh, yeah, it's a long form conversation where we just kind of chat together and you get to listen along. So I hope you enjoy Drew Carpenter. I'm here with Drew. Drew, how are you? Doing great, Justin. Thanks for uh, reaching out. Yeah, I was on your podcast just you not were. too long ago, and uh, I'm pumped to have you on my podcast. We're, uh, we're, this is the first time I've had a guest that I've also been on their podcast. So you're you're the first. So thank you. Well, cool. And kind of vice versa for me, because I don't think I've ever been on anybody's podcast other than mine. Oh, that's awesome. Well, very the cool. sermon podcast don't count. <laughs> yeah, of course they do. Those count. Um, okay. So, so I want to, I want to uh, dive right in. You, you grew up in a Southern Baptist church uh, and correct, like going to Southern Baptist church. I did. We were, my dad was like the chairman of the deacons. We were there. This is in Kansas City in the early 70s, and we were there every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, um, and I loved it. I mean, it was great. We had a great time, had great awesome. friends, and yeah, it was yeah, so, very, very formative. So I don't know if you know this about me, but I went to Liberty University, which was a Southern Baptist school, and then while I was at Liberty in my junior year... I served in my junior year and part of my senior year, actually the end of my, sorry, my sophomore year, my junior year and part of my senior year. So two and a half years while I was, while I was a student there, uh, majoring in youth ministry uh, in undergrad, I was also a pastor at an SBC church um, in uh, Big Island, uh, right? Just about 30 minutes from campus. And uh, that's kind of the first time I was a youth pastor. It's definitely the first time I was a youth pastor, but it was kind of uh, the church that I, um, got familiar with what it's like to do ministry in like that kind of a way, a small little Southern Baptist church. And uh, I'll tell you, man, I'm so gracious to that church, even though obviously I have difference of opinion with Southern Baptist at large. Like I'm so gracious to that church because of my, the amount of mistakes I must've made as a 19 year old being a youth pastor. <laughs> Looking back now, I'm like, oh man, Justin at 19 was so naive and stupid and dumb. And, uh, and this community had so much grace for me and love for me and care for me as a, as a college kid. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, so talk a little bit about your experience in the SBC, what was good about it. I, I kind of see this conversation, you and I have had conversations before just about like, and, I've, and obviously we follow each other on social media and we, I see you post about things and I post about things similar to like politics and church and separation 
of church and state. And so kind of my desire to start with SBC is because I think, I don't know about you, but my experience in SBC is there was also a very deep connection to politics and, um, and certainly my experience at Liberty, that was the case. And so just want to talk a little bit about church and politics and how we weave in and out of all of that. So, you know, in the, I don't remember it having a huge impact when I was a, a young kid, like seventies, eighties, we were in Kansas city, um, at a pretty good sized church on Metcalf Avenue, which is kind of a main thoroughfare in, um, Overland park. And mm-hmm. when we moved to Texas, we went to, we c- connected with another relatively new church, kind of a church plant in 1980 but our pastor was could probably more on the moderate side and he was getting his doctorate out at golden gate. And mm. so, which is a Southern Southern Baptist seminary. And for people that don't know this Southwestern Baptist theological seminaries in Fort worth. And so we were right in the, not quite the shadow of, of the Southern Baptist seminary, but you have about 3,500 uh, seminarians in Fort Worth serving it all over the place in different churches Mm. and things like that. And I do remember junior high and high school, just kind of the back and forth that was going on over at the seminary. They were talking through their, the um, kind of the faith and message type of stuff. And people would have to sign on that if they wanted to teach at the seminary. And then they started doing that with missionaries and things like that. So it very, very much felt, especially in my, late teen years and college years, it felt very, very political um, in, a, in a church world setting. And it was really kind of odd to me and a little bit off-putting, but it was what I knew. Yeah, um, I, I went to, so the church I was at, I mean, I was, we were very active as a part, we were in the youth group. We had a youth choir back then. I couldn't sing, but I hung out because that's where girls were and stuff like that. And <laughs> I liked being around the people. I had a great youth youth ministry folks in my life that were just really formative and really try to help disciple my stupid little hyper personal who I was at the time. And but they really tried to help me discover who Jesus is and how to read my Bible and the things that you you want young people to know is that here's the here's who Jesus is and here's here's this Bible that he, that we've gotten down through the years. And this is how you live your life. This is how you have a quiet time. This is kind of how you pray and things like that. And there wasn't, there wasn't any real mixing of politics with our church. You know, it wasn't in the eighties. You kind of have Ronald Reagan in 84 and I was still, that was like junior high ish, 80, 80 to 84 was his first term in office then 84 to 88 he was in office again and that was kind of this moral majority but you had a man that had you know it's very interesting because he had been divorced he had not really ever had any kind of real profession of faith or anything like that but the conservative kind of christian movement in our country got behind him and i think that probably had more so to do with the fact that oh i don't know i don't know what had to do fact with because i'm not a historical i'm not a historian and i'm definitely not a political historian um yeah but but i looked at that and i look at that and then i look at kind of how we've progressed over the years and how there's been this influence of of this conservative maybe yeah conservative white evangelical 
group that are that that would like to steer our country in a certain direction for, for some very good for very good reasons um you know they want our politics to be pro-life you know they want us to be um to kind of hold to some traditional values whatever those traditional values are and so i think the heart behind a lot of it is 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 well intentioned the mm. heart behind it is kind of having a lens through looking at scripture in a certain way that makes makes them think that they're they're right about their views on politics and yeah i think kind of the interesting thing to me is that sense of as kind of the a history of baptists is that baptists were separatist right mm -hmm. and they didn't want the church interfering at all and baptists are still that way they don't want the church interfering with them but you mean the also, state you mean the state they, yeah they don't want the, the state sorry yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. No. they don't want the state interfering with them but they're perfectly happy for the state to support them if that makes sense you know uh -huh. to have tax exempt status and i mean i don't know if any of your, uh, the, the listeners know these types of things but as an adorn as an ordained minister you don't have to necessarily pay taxes on your full salary say you make fifty thousand dollars a year in salary then you can take fifty you can take twenty twenty five thousand dollars of that and consider it housing allowance mm -hmm. and then you only get taxed on $25,000. You still have to pay Social Security. You pay like 15% of your the Social Security Medicare, but your real, your gross income is reduced. And that goes back to a rule they had years ago because people had parsonages. And so they weren't going to tax people on their parsonages, but they've continued to have this thing on the books. And that's a real beef that people have with, with Christian ministers because we don't want the state interfering with us but we're happy to take the the perks that we're given for being yeah. ministers and so it's that's always it's like i get a check in my spirit because i take that that allowance as well um and most not gonna ministers, lie not gonna lie i take it too <laughs> yeah most ministers like myself we don't make a ton of money as it is no yeah and so there's just that sense of oh well okay um so things like that 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 type of stuff. And I don't know where I'm going with that exactly, but that that's one example of, you know, we take a tax exemption. We go through the Pennsylvania state government bureaucracy so that when we go someplace, we don't have to pay sales tax for things we buy for the church. Yeah. Right. And yep. so we kind of want these types of separations. We don't have our church because we have something connected to us. We have a building that we rent out. We're taxed on that space over there. But the space where we have worship services and gatherings, that's tax exempt. We don't pay any taxes, no property taxes for that. Whereas my neighbor next door over here, that Brown's um, feed store, they're paying taxes for their property. And then mm. my, yeah. So th th we like those perks and benefits. And so there's not, there's not a true separation in my, just in the way that I look at those types of things. I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. we want all the benefits that the state will provide us, um, but we don't want them telling us what to do. And so, yeah, they had the payroll protection program thing come out, and there was a little bit of a hubbub there because there were um, there were churches that were seeking this this loan out from the government, 
and other people were saying, well, you can't take a loan from the government because they'll just attach a whole lot of strings to it. And it's like, well, that may be true as well, but they do that for any grant that they do or any other. And yep. so you're just like, okay, I'm kind of caught in something here. I want to be able to continue to pay my employees. I want to be able to continue to pay our mortgage. And we don't know what's going to happen in the middle of this pandemic. And so you kind of, you kind of go with that and go, okay, where's this? So it's, it's a, it's a personal tension I feel too. Yeah. Not just a, I, I can't rail against one side or the other of that over it, other of it. It's just an acknowledgement that, that, that something here isn't right. Like, or at least it isn't as right as it potentially could be. Is that, is that fair of saying? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, and I think going back to the eighties and politics and things like that, I think you had a guy in Jimmy Carter who was probably the most, if you put quotations around the most Christian person to be in that office in the last 50 or 60 years, just from his lifestyle and what he said and what he tried to accomplish. And he was, he was a Democrat. And if you're a white evangelical, 80% or something like that voted for, is it 80 or was it 90% of white evangelicals? Voted for Donald Trump. I want to and, say it was something like 88 or yeah, it some, was somewhere huge, between it was 80 and 90 percentage, you know, and I don't Hillary Clinton, whether she's a, I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't say anything for her, 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 and her spirituality because it seemed nominal as well. Yeah. But it's just, it's very interesting to me to kind of go, okay, what, who, who, and how are we voting for these people that we're voting for? And if it's a moral choice, then why are we voting for somebody that appears to be amoral, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, and again, we've had lots of people in politics and Barack Obama had his share of problems. You mm -hmm. know, there was problematic things that he did. Drone strikes being kind of one of the things that I'm would say was the most problematic, but there was plenty Same of with other me. things. Yeah. And, yeah. and not, I would say for me, not closing Gitmo after he said he would. Right. Yeah. I mean, and the, so the, 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 there's always those, those promises not kept. Yeah. Correct. And so it's part of leading, right? You've made promises as a pastor that then other information came and other realities came and you just, right. well, we well, wanted to follow through pushing, on that. You have things pushing back against you yeah. that make it impossible for you to do what you're hoping to do. And so, yeah, that, I, I don't know. I mean, I read years ago, read the politics of Jesus by Howard Yoder. Oh yeah. Um, Jesus for president, all, all the kind of, I don't know, would be to people kind of progressive. This is, this is who Jesus really was. And he was a revolutionary and those types of things. And I look at that and I go, you know, he was, he was a revolutionary, but really he was trying to set up pockets of Jubilee all over Galilee. He was trying to help free people from their own, the, the things that they felt were oppressing to them. He was trying yeah. to help them learn to forgive one another. He was helping, trying to help them learn to see that, well, if you have, you have a, um, you have a little fish and a little loaf, that's enough. Let's do something with that. Right. And he was trying to help people figure out that he was present with them and he wanted to show them what real blessings were really about. And that was his kingdom. And so that, yeah, that's revolutionary, but it's subversive. Um, and it had nothing to do with getting, Pontius Pilate or Herod or anybody else to help him make it happen. Right. Yeah. Let, let, I want to ask this question because this is something I've been wrestling with a lot lately. I, I fully agree with what you just said. 
Jesus was not interested in taking sides in the politics of his time. Like literally one of the biggest arguments of his time was should we pay taxes or should we not? That was one of the biggest arguments at that time in Jewish culture because there, there are people that are oppressed. There are people that are being occupied by Rome, the world superpower at the time. And feel free to correct me if you disagree with any of this along the way. And in that way, Jesus is approached with, should we pay taxes? Because this is a debate that's, all different rabbis have different beliefs on this debate. Some are like, pay the taxes to appease Rome so that we can keep the temple. We're not trying to begin a rebellion. Does that make sense? We're not trying mm -hmm. to potentially lose our temple rights because you guys are going to resist. Does that make sense? Right. And other people were like, we're not paying taxes. We will resist and we will not pay taxes. And Jesus is approached with the question and he just kind of like pauses and is like, you got a coin? Mm -hmm. Oh, hand it to me. Whose face is on the coin? Ah, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. He doesn't take a side. See, this isn't him supporting paying taxes for the sake of like keeping your temple rights. This is him saying, this is bigger than that. Like there's a different way of approaching this than the binary, we either pay taxes or we don't. Well, and I appreciate that about Jesus in that moment. But one of the things I think is unique about Jesus's time, and especially a lot of what Paul says, because a lot of what Paul says, I think is used to say, we should be politically disengaged. God's got this. God's, God positions our leaders and puts them in power. And so I'm just going to keep my hands off, but I'm going to vote with the party line or with, you know, I'm going to say all these things, but then it's like, if it doesn't go my way, God's got it. Or even if it does go my way and my leader that I, that I help put in place ends up doing something immoral, wrong. Well, then the answer at that point is, well, God's got it. I, it's whatever. Like, mm -hmm. and, and my thing yeah. about that is, is like, no, 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 no. Paul didn't have a vote. Paul didn't get to go sit in a town hall at Rome and give his opinion to Caesar about how he leads. Like there's a certain amount here of like, okay, as a Christian, like I, what I think is beautiful about the moral majority. And some people are going to really have a problem with me saying beautiful about the moral majority is there was a call to action to be involved and allow the moral compass of Christians who are called to be Christ-like to actually influence our world and the ways in which we organize. Mm -hmm. You can call yeah. that politics because that's all politics is. It's just the way we organize. Mm -hmm. The problem is their agenda, in my humble opinion, had less to do with Christ and more to do with a party. And, 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 and again, that's my personal opinion, or at least it evolved to that point. If it was pure at the beginning, it evolved to that point where I don't think it's hard for me when white evangelicals are the first ones to support war, when white evangelicals are the first ones to support death penalty, when white evangelicals are the first, these are things that Jesus was clearly adamantly against. This isn't like when white evangelicals are the first ones to be against initiatives to help, um, you know, in issues of poverty and in issues of public health, even, um, these are things Jesus healed. Jesus cared for the poor. Um, so I, I look at that and I say, we have a vote too. So like, let's not, let's not completely remove ourselves from the responsibility. It's like if Caesar gave Jesus a vote, <laughs> 
I don't know how Jesus would respond. Maybe he would respond the same way and he would just not, not vote. Maybe that would be Jesus's take, but it's important to reference that like Jesus, the disciples, Paul, none of these people lived in the society we live in, which is the unique thing about America. We get a say, we get to be involved. And I think that's really what muddies this up because it makes it so hard to be like separation of church and state, but we still get a say. Right. Right. That's, that's the difficult thing. And, and I've, I've, I've wrestled with this personally because I've, I've had seasons of like, I'm not voting. I'm abstaining because as a Christian, I can't vote. But then I'm like, what a privileged thing for me to say as a white, first of all, as a white male, what a privileged thing for me to say, the system works pretty well for me. So I can't abstain from voting. As I talk to my black friends, they're like, you're going to abstain from voting. Well, that's a cool thing that you get the option to do that. Oh, you're just going to say it's your moral conviction because of the scriptures. I think it might also be because you don't have to live in the systems of poverty and even violence that we endure. And so you're just going to disengage from it. And it's like, Ooh, that hurts and stings, but you're probably right. Like, wow. Okay. Well, I just saw a statistic yesterday and then I want to go back to the, the Caesar and the coin thing in a minute. Yeah. 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 But the, um, so since 1964, no Democrat has ever carried the white vote. So that's longer than my lifetime. That's like almost 60 years. So 1964 was the last time that the white, like, like white people carried. Would that be John? uh, Would that be John F. K. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Second. Yeah. And so, and and then back to the kind of the, so the, the, he, Jesus asks, well, who's, who's impression or whose image is on that coin? Yeah. Yeah. And he says, they say Caesar. It's like, well, give to Caesar's what's to Caesar's, but render to God what's God's. Yeah. And so it's the Imago Day. That's the image of what's the image on us? It's God's image, right? Yeah. Me and you and every other person that's ever walked the, this planet. So render what God has impressed upon us back to God. Give Caesar his coin, whatever. That's a piece of whatever it was, mm. probably bronze or something. Yeah but give to God what belongs to God. And so he was deciding at some point he was deciding, you know, you're God's first, you know? And I, I, so I write this, I write an email every week and send it out. And I was working on it a little bit this morning. And I'm just thinking about um, just all this stuff that's swirling around and just what's justice and how do we do this? Right. How do we, and I'm thinking about, okay, Matthew 18 and, and discipline among brothers and things like that. Okay. That doesn't really fit because he's talking about kind of people who are of the same persuasion and they're kind of believers or whatever, right? It's kind of insiders, but then Paul talks about, and people will use Romans 13 and say, well, Paul says, give the authority to them because they heal, they wield that stick, they wield that sword for a reason. It's not in vain. But then <laughs> you think about Paul and it's like, well, he didn't follow his own advice. <laughs> he is thrown in jail for not doing what he was supposed to do in these localities and, be, and being yeah. somebody that was going against what they want. And there, you know, Rome was pretty, they're pretty okay with religions in general of other religions, right? As long as you didn't say Caesar, as long as you didn't go against God. And then for Jesus to be walking around um, with a pretty good claim of being Lord and, Paul saying Jesus is Lord, kind of bringing those t- things up in um, in public. I mean, that was about as subversive as you can get, and it was blatant. And so for them, I mean, 
they were going to speak to government, but they weren't necessarily going to be a part of the government. And I think that's, um, that's probably like in the denomination I'm in now in the brethren in Christ, I think that was probably something that they were, they were pretty cognizant of early on. I think they've kind of changed from those types of stances, but they might vote, but they wouldn't actually be a mayor of a town or serve in the police force and things like that. And there's other issues with that because we're supposed to be nonviolent resistors and pacifist. And so, yeah. um, but again, th there is that you have to, I think politically you always have to stand up for what is right. And that's not always a right versus left scenario. Exactly. And so I, I really, I don't know. I know there's, talk uh, and, and people that are a part of the third way and um i don't get i don't i'm not sure exactly how that works <laughs> I, I like the idea i like the concept because it's like okay i, I just want to be with jesus on all of this stuff right and i want to be a good follower and dedicated to his teachings and his philosophy and his way of being in the world um service over being served, um, a different kind of power structure, you know, um, a power that says I'll absorb the sin and anger that you throw my way. Um, and so that, that is that third way, but we have people that prefer either one or the other, not a middle way or not a different way. Um, and I don't know how to kind of get around that stuff because yeah, there's stuff that's problematic from an extreme right sense and extreme left sense. Yeah. And that, so that's why, I mean, yeah, I can't, you can't just say, okay, I'm just going to vote for this party because I think this party, you know, 75% of the things that they hold up to be true and right. I, I agree with, but what about the 25? That's pretty heavy. 25. That, yeah. 100%, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, and, and that's the, that's actually the, the, the legitimate problem. And especially even in local politics, like I, I look at it from like the standpoint of like local politics really has a huge impact on you and your community, but it's so hard to be informed about these local politicians. Cause a lot of people don't even know what they do. Like a lot of right. people don't even know what their mayor does. They're just like, he's there. Uh, yeah, he's around. Like, I mean, they don't really know the tangible nuts and bolts of like what these positions do. And, and to be honest, I don't know the tangible nuts and bolts of what everyone in my, what every like board person and different, you know, um, people within my community do. Like, I just, I don't know. I'm not as informed. Um, and so it can be hard to even know of like, well, what leanings actually matter most in that particular position too. Like, and this is where like even information matters. Cause it's like, well, maybe the fact that we don't line up on that isn't that big of a deal in this role because that's not, that's probably not going to be an issue, but I am passionate about this and they are, and that's actually the primary, you know, impetus of their role. And so, right. so I can, I can look the other, cause, cause the thing is we're not a monolith. We're not going to like all look at things the same way. And so like, there is a certain amount of like, however we organize as a community, we're going to have different ideas that rise to the, to the top that, that aren't ideas that we would necessarily have or support. And we can shoot down all those ideas and say, like, if you don't have the same idea as me, I'm not going to vote for you. But it's going to, it, it, there has to be a certain amount of concession, whether it's 25%, I don't know. But I think also it's, it's less of even like, how much does this person line up with me? 
to also like how much of this person, how much of this person's role actually um, will affect change in that particular area that we disagree about, like, which I think is important too, you know, because sometimes people are asked things that aren't really pertinent to their role. Um, right. All and, the time. <laughs> and it, exactly. And they, and they answer that and therefore take the either credit or flack for that. And, um, and that's a hard reality in our world today. And I would go even deeper here because one of the things that I'm, that, that I struggle with about, and, and I'll just speak for myself here about conservative politics. And right now is like, whenever I post something about racial justice, about housing equality, about like LGBT equality, anything I would post about equality or about championing people who are oppressed in our world, there is a segment of population that will comment in those comment threads, but what about abortion? As if I'm not looking at that, I'm only looking at this. And that, po that segment of the population, in, and this is, I, I wanna be clear, I don't wanna like paint with a broad brush and put everybody in the same you know, bucket here. There's a large amount of people who are, who are pro-life who fall into all different categories. But in my experience, the majority of them fall into the Republican Party, fall into conservative politics in general. And one of the things I don't think I've ever really seen true outrage about, but I'm outraged about, is that when Bush was in office, George W. Bush was in office, he had everything lined up to make effective federal change on abortion and didn't like they they could have voted and, and had that change like they had two years a two-year period of time where they had all of the branches lined up to do that and they didn't and all of them ran on that platform and after that and by that that time I was coming out of liberty I believe it was right around the time I think that I was coming out of Liberty and I was starting to hear other perspectives on a lot of different things. And I think at that time, someone told me they don't want to get rid of abortion. They want to keep this in their back pocket to use over and over again, every election. And now look, I don't know that it's that sinister. I want to be honest. I'm not saying I believe that I'm saying it's, it seems more plausible than like, well, if you really are passionate about this from a moral perspective and you ran on the platform to do it and you had everything lined up for a slam dunk to do it, why didn't you do it? Like, I, I, I'm confused, you know, and am I misunderstanding or representing history? Do you remember this season? No, I'm too? I, the, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of the, those two years, but there is a sense that, politicians have a platform that they go with and it's part of the party platform whether they believe those things or not is not nearly as important as to retaining their seats and their power and their influence and that's on both sides really important yeah, to absolutely. emphasize that's on both absolutely sides. we want to we want to stay where we're where we are you know and talk about needing some term limits and some change over, you know, your, your local mayor, it's pretty rare for a local mayor to just be there forever because people know that person, they see what that person has done and what they've been, 
they, they, they get to see the, the life of that person up close and personal. Yeah. And so, or your school board members, Carmen and I, my wife is Carmen. We went to, um, we went to a couple of school, school board meetings early on because there was some scandal with the superintendent that got here the year we got here. And then we just wanted to know what was going on. But the board meeting itself was just the open to public part was nothing. It, they had done all the decision making and all the real meeting was behind closed doors. And you're just like, oh, this is interesting. And so, yeah, at that point, I mean, yeah, there was a, there was a big turnover within that first year or so of people that were on that school board, everybody that was on it, that, that, uh, that could get voted out, got voted out. <laughs> You're just like, but wow. that's, that's how that stuff should work. Right. It shouldn't be your opinion on necessarily, I don't know, I won't say this because yeah, there are, you know, it shouldn't for a, for a city council person in, spring township or i don't even know if we have if we have i guess we have city council people we have but it's a school board specifically it doesn't matter it shouldn't matter what their perspective on a hot button topic is because they don't have anything to do with and this is kind of to your point earlier they don't have anything to do with that hot button topic they have something to do with getting a good budget for the school and figuring out if they want to build a new stadium or put some more books into the library right that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not we legalize marijuana or whatever those other things are, but they might have an opinion on that. And yeah. that would, that might influence how you vote for them because they, yeah. Yeah. But you might vote for somebody who's less educated about what is necessary for that particular role in going a different right. direction. That's, Absolutely. that's, that's because, I think because they fall in line with you on these moral things as opposed to competency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, so what led you from Southern Baptist to brethren in Christ? And I only ask that from a standpoint of, yeah. to me, Anabaptist theology <laughs> is very different than Baptist theology. And I say that maybe it's good to give maybe like a one sentence definition or, or, or to at least bring people up to speed if they're not familiar. I think when I think of SBC, I think of them being attached to the moral majority largely because Jerry Falwell was so attached to the moral majority and had such an influence in the SBC. Feel free to correct me if you think that's wrong. Uh, and then on the Anabaptist side, I see them as separatists. Like now, obviously there's all different levels of Anabaptist. You have uh, Amish would be considered Anabaptist and they're obviously very separate. And then there would be things, you know, Mennonites and, and pretty much everything in between when you have people like um, Brethren in Christ who are a denomination like Brethren in Christ who are, you know, at least over the last, I don't know, his, his, historian wise, probably the last 40 years have been wildly influenced by evangelicalism, but they still have roots in um, pietism and a baptism and um, Wesleyanism. And so they have, they're, they're kind of an eclectic uh, blend, if you will, uh, and that's very different than Southern Baptist, in my opinion. So tell me a little bit about the process from, from, from that changing within you to be able to move from sure. a Southern Baptist upbringing to that. Sure. So I served in Southern Baptist churches um, throughout like my seminary time. And I 
went to a church in Austin, which was originally a Southern Baptist church. The pastor there um, was a Southern Baptist um, person, but this, but, but he was, he, he started that church back in the mid eighties, I guess. Mm. And pretty soon after he, um, he dropped the name Baptist. Um, then he ordained a couple of women. And so that was pretty scandalous at the time. Um, and so they only had loose ties and affiliations with the Southern Baptist. And I, I went into that because I, you know, just like I was talking about, I think earlier we were talking about seminary a little bit and how I had these professors that, that didn't just, here's the, here's the Southern Baptist stuff. Obviously we had Baptist history and church history, but we, we got some Anabaptist history. We got some Catholic teachings. We looked at a whole lot of different things that weren't just, you know, what you would think of from a Southern Baptist seminary. It was, it was pretty widely held. I mean, there's one of my professors was from, from Notre Dame, you know, another one was, um, yeah, the philosophy of religion guy was from Notre Dame. This other guy was from was a divorced man, if you could believe that, back in wow. the early two thousands, and he he was one of our professors. And um, so I it was it was this kind of confluence of being exposed to new things and different things that were also Jesus centered and focused, and but were not necessarily handed down for the last 50 years from the Southern Baptist convention. And so it just kind of opened up at that point in the early two thousands, when I was in seminary, I went to this church in Austin that was, um, there was Methodist on staff. There's Lutherans on staff. There are people from outside of Southern Baptist life that I was getting to know and be a part, part of the ministry with these folks. Um, one of the things that happened, um, while I was in Austin, while I was in um, Houston, we started kind of doing these, doing missions with kids and local missions. I mean, we weren't taking them to faraway places. We were just doing stuff close to their neighborhood and helping them see that, you know, we have these kind of upper middle class kids, like a mile and a half from where our church building was. There's these, these mostly immigrant kids, mostly people of color that we're trying to trying to get a church started over there. And we're like, let's go help. Let's go help them do vacation Bible school. And so I started kind of doing some of the, the social work type of stuff, not as a social worker, but trying to like just help my kids see a bigger world than their little bubble. Not my personal kids. I do have kids, but they were pretty little at that time. <laughs> um, but helping these middle school and high school kids see that there's a bigger world out there and that God's in that world. and you need to see God in that part of the world, right? Not as opposed to going in there and trying to fix stuff, just go and be a part of it. And so that's kind of what opened me up more and more. Um, I also, you know, to be honest, you know, I'm, I love my country. I love the United States and some of the ideals that it stands for, but I, I kind of got tired of that. Um, the God and country stuff, right? Um, mm-hmm. The, I don't know, the Mike Huckabee, you know, God's guns and the word <laughs> or whatever that book was he had a few years ago. And I was like, Oh no, I'm not. It, it just, so I, I didn't see, there wasn't a lot of that at my church in Austin, but I saw it in a lot of the other Southern Baptist life. 
and I was kind of just over it. I was over us worshiping a flag on Sunday when it's Memorial day or 4th of July. Yeah. And I love my country. I signed up for selective service when I was a kid in case I needed to get drafted or whatever that was. Right. Um, and, but the reality was I got out of college in 91 and we were right in the middle of getting, we were in the Gulf war, you know, the first one. And I was like, Oh, I didn't have great grades. I'm like, I could go to war. <laughs> you know, and I was like, yeah. I didn't really like that very much. So it's it's anything that we. Do, I mean, it's always a progression. And I just I got to a point where I'd, I kind of you know there was too much going on in my life that that kind of went against solving things through violence or force or um, coercion. Um, and then again, just seeing the kind of the wars that we fought and God bless the young men of, and women of all walks of life that went in and tried to do what they did in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, they were doing what they thought was right. And I honor them for that. And I, there, there's no ill will towards any of those folks because I know that they were trying to do what's best. They were trying to preserve our democracy and bring democracy to other parts of the world. And I get that, but it just, I, God has a better way of doing those things. And it starts with people like you and me. It starts with individuals, not with countries. <laughs> and I don't think that ever, when you look back to Abraham and it was a person that started it, right? Mm -hmm. You look to Moses and it was a person that started it. And you look to Jesus and it was a person that started this. And so it wasn't them trying to, they created, they created movements, right? Mm -hmm. But they didn't, um, they weren't looking for backing from a military or, yeah, I don't know. Kind of rambled oh, on. I, I no, kind of rambled I, on there a little bit, but I, I, I think, I that's, think that's that, kind of where my progression came from. It's here, like here, reading here. Henry Nowen and reading N.T. Wright and looking at um, yeah. Brian McLaren and, um, you know, the emergent church type of stuff that was happening in the early 2000s just maybe really th rethink the, the, the idea that, that the SBC had it all going on. There was other things out there that were happening yeah. and emerging and were, were Jesus focused too. Right. And so it was yeah. not so much a, eh, with this SBC as it was, Oh, there's some other things going on here. And I like this. And so when I got a call from Koinos Community Church back a few years ago, I had never even heard of the Brethren in Christ. And they, um, I want to say it was either Tim, my co-pastor, or it was the bishop, Brian. They're like, okay, look at the 10 core values of the Brethren in Christ and see if that matches up with you. And I'm looking at this going, oh, yeah, I like that. Oh yeah, that's good. <laughs> and so that those those values resonated with me. Same with me, man. Hundred percent. Trying to go with the simplicity. Trying to, you know, not having a, um, kind of having that nonviolent um, resistance piece in there. That's like there is a better way of doing the stuff than what we're doing. And yeah, yeah. Those so. those ten those ten core values to me are like. Um, and obviously I'm not in the brethren in Christ anymore for other reasons, but those 10 core values, I 110% support. Like those are, to me, those are the things that like the brethren in Christ should be trumpeting right now. Like, mm -hmm. and not that I have a vested interest in what they trumpet and don't, but I'm saying like, 
in our world right now, I think people are looking for something different um, when it comes to church. I think, uh, and I think uh, those those core values are are very unique in the midst of many church experiences that are not having those necessary conversations about um, living simply, um, nonviolence. Um, just, just the Jesus focus. Jesus centered. on Jesus. Jesus centered. As opposed like, to, yeah, yeah, as opposed to, you know, we believe the, the whole Bible, you know, when we believe it has authority for our lives, but let's look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ. Exactly. Through whatever we're bringing back into it. You know, we don't just go back through history and go, we'll go through Luther and Calvin and get to August Augustine or any of the other early church fathers than Paul than Jesus. We go, well, let's try to go back to Jesus <laughs> instead and see yeah. where he went with people. And again, yeah, be informed by some of that other stuff, but know that Christ had this, I mean, he had these people around him that were, jotting this down and, and taking note and he it, it's been left for us all these years. And so, yeah, that's, that, yeah. I mean, that's how I landed here. Um, it wasn't. How long ago was that? What have you been here? Three, four years. Now? I've been here since 2016. Yeah. You know, and again, the, the church I was at was not your, wouldn't have been a typical Southern Baptist church. And so I'd probably been out of it for, specifically for about 13 years before that. So I've, mm. I've been half of my career has been kind of outside of Southern Baptist church life. I mean, my kids, my son's what, 24 and my daughter's 20. And I think it was in, I don't know. I can't remember who it was. One of them was like, I didn't even know we were evangelical <laughs> when they were in high school. I was like, well, yeah, it doesn't come up. Right. Because they don't like, they don't, I mean, they don't like it because it, it does. It's, they get lumped in with white evangelical um, politics and they don't want to be lumped in with that because they have friends that have been hurt by that. And Do you have a sense that the younger generation, gen, the millennial generation and generation Z are even more aware of evangelical, like the idea of the white evangelical church than previous generations and are more like, I don't want to try to say like the church has a PR problem. Like we need a, we need to manage our PR. Does that make sense? Um, but I guess I'm saying like in the sense that like uh, there's a, there's a seems to be at least in my experience a, a more of a gut like a gut reaction that's like anti-white evangelical in the millennial generation and generation z yeah um, i would say so because they're you know and i could base this just only on my experience right my but both of my kids they they love jesus but they don't necessarily like what they see of the church and its influence on how the world's operating right now. Mm. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think you're, you're right. I mean, they, because if you, I don't know, I, I don't know. Cause there's kids, there's definitely kids that are super conservative, like their parents and will continue to be so. Um, and they're millennial. 
Um, I think that the thing that may be different now than it was when I was young or when you were in your twenties, when I was in my, I was probably my forties when you're in your twenties, but anyways, uh, (laughs) but the, but the difference now is that we're, we have more information available to us. We see it more often. Yeah. You know, and I think we, we may have talked about this on my podcast. It's just the fact that Columbine was like 99, I want to say. Um, yeah. And that's all my, my son was three at the time. And so they've mm-hmm. grown up with school shootings, right? That, that wasn't something that was, if it happened when I was a kid, but I wasn't aware of it because we didn't have, we had an internet, but that was for the government to use. It wasn't for, it wasn't for <laughs> me and you, right? And so yeah. the, just the dissemination of information was way less. I mean, we live in a global world, whether people like that or not. Yeah. So we have access to good information and bad information. And I think the danger comes when uh, there's, there's always some danger, but I think there's the dangerous aspect of it is just the pro proliferation of stuff. That's just not true. That, that people definitely, right. And they want to believe a certain narrative. And I think that's true. I mean, and this is, that's political and that's biblical not biblical, but that's how people look at the Bible. They want to believe that this is how this is going to be because this is what the Bible says. Well, and you can broaden that out. That's, that's human nature in general is that we have, we have a preconceived notion and then we just look for confirmation of that notion that we already have. Right. That's exactly right. Because my pastor said 10 years ago that this is how this is. And I didn't go bother to look it up. (laughs) Yep. I didn't, I took his word for it. And that's the same with a politician, the politician that I like, that's in my party said this, so I'm not even going to confirm it, you know, and somebody could tell me, well, here's the fact check, you know, there, some of the stuff that the president is saying is getting fact checked on Twitter now. Right. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't like that because he wants to say whatever he wants to say. And we should be fact checking everybody, (laughs) you know, in my opinion, so it shouldn't just be Donald Trump that gets a little star when he says something that's not true. It should be, people on the far left that are promoting things that are just not true and not, not helpful. Definitely. And uh, I think it should be proportional to your platform. I mean, you're the president of the freaking United States. So if you say something that's false, you have an obligation to say something real, like in my opinion, that's my opinion, but, but but I think if you're, if you're a pastor, somebody, somebody like me that has, I don't know, 600 ish followers on Twitter that I could say something, and if I said something and he amplified it, then oh, well, what does that do? What? Yeah, I don't know. What does so that do to your it, platform? Is it the yeah. platform? Yeah, because I'm my well, little dinky flat if platform. The, yeah. If the if the yeah the the hard thing I have like I, and I've heard Jack Dorsey talk on this. I don't know how much you've you've dived into this, but like the amount of people tweeting. Okay, so 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 let's just take a moment here right now. Okay. So right now. So that, that little moment I just spent of not speaking thousands and thousands of tweet tweets were sent. Mm-hmm. How can Twitter truly manage what is true and not true and fact check everything? I think, I think that's actually the struggle we're living in. The struggle we're living in is that fact checking requires, I, I, I actually think it's, I think fact checking is important, really important. But I think what it actually, what's better is actually, first of all, beginning to literally put courses for 
critical thinking within our infrastructure of education because we have a gross lack of critical thinking, um, I think, in our society right now. An ability to be like, I, I've literally seen so many people, young and old, see a Babylon Bee or Onion article and respond as if it's real. And at that point, I say we have a critical thinking yeah. problem. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. and, and, and so, so we have this problem. Let's work on educating people on how to have the, how to have the critical thinking like mechanism and not assume everyone that thinks they have it has it either. Like, I don't, I know there's times where I'm biased. Does that make sense? Sure. What I'm, what I'm, what I'm also trying to do is trying to widen my net of like people I listen to and be cautious to get inside of an echo chamber. I want to hear people that, that are intelligent, informed, and have a different idea or opinion than me. What I don't want to do is say, okay, that rambler over there, I mean, I'll just use an example. I'm not going to go to Alex Jones for information because for <laughs> me, he has a track record of misinformation. This is not me widening my, my circle and my net of influence. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I'm willing to go to voices that I disagree with, um, but that are doing it in a way that is informed um, and, and legitimate. And so I, I think we need to widen our, our bubble, right? We need to be cautious to, to fall into a particular um, you know, echo chamber. At the same time, though, I have a difficult time when people are like, this is a Twitter problem and a Facebook problem, and they abdicate personal responsibility. They, 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 they completely throw away the fact that like, this is like social media happened in a lot of ways overnight. Like, I know we've been in this for years now, but like, I don't know how Twitter could create an algorithm to fact check. Outside of us, outside of us, eventually, which probably will happen, having the artificial intelligence that would actually be able to do the information, like numbers to like to, to, to be self-learning AI in some ways and, 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 and mine that data and then determine that that. But you're always going to have that's scary. You're, well, that's the thing, right? Because that becomes the reality. My thing is, is actually in all of this, that's actually my fear. My fear is you begin to silence the people. And, and you put, push them further into their echo chamber because now they're a martyr. You kicked them off Twitter because they said something stupid. They didn't threaten anybody, but they spread misinformation. And instead of it being marked as a, you know, a, a tweet. So I, I have a little bit of an opinion about this that's probably more libertarian. I, and I only say that from the standpoint of like, I think the inverse, if we cross that line of like controlling people's speech on this platform, which by the way, Twitter has every right to kick you off their platform because they're their own company. Does that make sense? Right. Your freedom oh, of speech yeah. is not, your freedom of speech is tied to the terms and agreements that you sign when you download that app. So I don't want to say like Twitter has a right to, to allow you to say whatever they want on their platform because you're an American. It's like, well, Twitter is an international brand and they can do whatever they want because you're deciding to use their app. And in that, you're forfeiting particular rights in that process. The thing for me is though, as a society, it's a primary way we communicate. It's odd to me how many people go to Twitter at the start of the day and get their news. I don't, but I know a lot of friends that do and that I really respect and that are like very informed people. Um, it's but but they're only getting a certain those algorithms are designed in such a way that you are you're going into your yep. own 
funnel or your what you call an echo chamber. Echo chamber. And yeah. Facebook's the same way. Yep. And you, honestly, Facebook or Twitter, Twitter loves Donald Trump because it's a love hate relationship because <laughs> he's got all those followers. They're popping ads in there. They're making money because he's on there and he's got lots of people that are on there looking at him. And so there, it, it, yeah, there's no, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like yeah, it's right. like there, it can cut either way. It right. can cut in a positive way and a negative way almost at the same time. And that I think is the thing that makes me say, this isn't about reforming Twitter because I don't know that there's an answer, or at least I haven't heard an answer that really helps both directions get right. better. What I think this is about is about working on human nature, which, which, which That's the third way. <laughs> yes. That's yes. The third way. Exactly. If right. We would all just love Jesus and, and be the kind of people Jesus wanted us to be. Then yeah, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have to worry about parties. You know, we, well, we wouldn't, we, they could, you know, I don't if I'm you if a, you just I'm looked at first Corinthians funding the police, but we wouldn't have to spend as much money on riot gear and Humvees for our police force. We could like maybe give them better benefits. I don't know what their benefits are, but yeah, we could we could focus our energies on on better things if we just decided to love Jesus and love our neighbors the way we we're supposed to love our neighbors and be good to the people that are serving us our meals or whatever any any place that we're acting like jesus and being like jesus is that that's going to help a democrat a republican a libertarian an anarchist whatever that's yeah and socialist. that's that's where it comes like when you say love love jesus love your neighbor it's like love your neighbors the second greatest commandment like you know what i mean it's it's second to love jesus and and it's the commandment in which jesus embodied in his life and and if you look at Corinthians, like, and, and Paul's description of love, it's like, it, love is patient, love is kind, like, just stop there. That could take a lifetime to learn, like, that, that when you're loving someone, it requires patience, and it requires kindness. Wow, that, that alone, like, stop there, don't even read the rest of the passage. Like, like, there's a ton more descriptors on love past that, but geez, that's going to be a hard one, those two. Like, I, I just mean, start. <laughs> just start, start that direction. So like, to me, that says, like, okay, what is, what does it look like to be patient and kind on a platform like Twitter? Oh gosh, there's, you would, you are in the, the like 1% of 1%. If you're, if you, if you import the value of patience and kindness into the way in which you tweet and interact on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, and by the way, I, let's add self-control to that. I, yeah, self-control. Yeah. I deleted Twitter like I don't, I, I have Twitter. I have a Twitter. Like, so if anybody is here and they follow me on Twitter, just so you know how I use Twitter, if you're ever commenting or direct messaging me on Twitter, I never check Twitter. I push everything from Instagram to Twitter. I found Instagram to be a platform that ultimately I can like see some people, see some things I want to see, but not like have to like, I don't have to engage as much in the hard things on Instagram, although that is starting to change. Yeah, um, it is. It, uh, it was a happier place a few months ago. <laughs> it sure was. Um, yeah, 2020's kind of ruined every platform at this point. Uh, 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 yeah, that's funny to think about. Because Facebook used to be the dumpster fire. And quite honestly, I, I did something on my Facebook. And I don't know that I want to tell everybody I did this, but I'll go ahead and do it. I unfollowed everyone on Facebook. So I'm friends with everyone on Facebook, but I've unfollowed everyone. So, so listen, listen to this. And, and I mean, I, this is across the board, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like I, I've unfollowed everyone. Um, 
because I'm just like, I'm done getting on here. And like, literally the first thing is just something that triggers me. Cause that's what mm. Facebook would always do. Yeah. Facebook would put the thing that they knew was going to like be the thing that was like, you know, Trump stands in front of church with Bible after tear gassing protesters. It's like, that's the first thing. And it's like <laughs> five of those on my feet. It's like, what the heck? And so like, mm. I just finally got to the point where I'm like, I have to be on this platform for work. Cause I thought about deleting it. Mm. Like I have to be on this platform for work because I run our, our churches, uh, social media. I have to be here. I'm going to be here. Okay. Here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to, and I had a few friends who had done this already and who had told me how it went. And, um, I'll say this. I spend so much less time on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, my time on Facebook is so much more enjoyable. And I actually think I'm still hearing different perspectives than mine, but I don't feel like I have to see this person that I know really well, that's spreading misinformation and feel this like internal, like war within me of like, do I want to let them know you can't share that. That's wrong. What's my obligation to tell this family member that like, Oh gosh, what are you spreading here? Like, mm. um, you know what I mean? And that I don't have to have that right now. Like, you know what I mean? Like I don't have to go through that, which has been helpful. So, uh, I'm just saying, but is that helpful though? Or if you, you know, it's a good it, question. If, it's a good uh, okay. Question. Because you know, I, I don't remember when it was, but I did. I jumped off of Facebook. I said, I'm leaving because I was tired of it and probably had something to do with the duplicity of Zuckerberg or something like that. But I, I left, but I didn't close my account. So I went through and I, I downloaded, like you can offload all your pictures, all your posts, everything. You can like take all that, put it on a, on a drive. And so I did that. And then when I started this podcast and this email, it's like, oh, I'm just going to post that stuff to that. Because that's where, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of my quote unquote friends are. And again, most of my good friends are on Facebook, but I got so tired of being on there and looking at the, the misinformation and people that were believing stuff, you know, but um, Tim and I have had this discussion recently. Tim's a guy I co-pastor with about just you know, what do you address and what do you not address and how can you help people kind of navigate some of this stuff? And that's the, that's the million dollar question. And so if you're not, if these people are your, your part of your church body, then there's, there, there's an opportunity for shepherding and pastoring in that. Yeah. What's your obligation? What's your obligation? Yeah. Yeah. So that, I don't have an answer for that, but I just, that, that is a question. It's like, okay, what, do, what should you do with that? Because Drew, I answered very the much question. Into, you're, you're hopping into people's <laughs> closets a little bit. Yeah. I answered they, the question. Oh, just unfollow everybody. It's a, yeah. it's a simpler world when you unfollow everybody. No, <laughs> oh, man. So, no, yeah. I, I, I really do think it's a problem, right? I, I, I'll say this. I did it after a season of reflection on my own personal longevity and health in the reality of, so let's just say this, I, I, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. I don't know how much you mm-hmm. are aware of the Enneagram. I, in matters of justice, particularly, I, it's hard for me to separate it from personal. Does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. it, it's really hard for me. And, and, and I've grown in that like 18 year old, Justin, would have been very different than, you know, 36 year old Justin now, which by the way, I was born in 84. So, uh, so I don't know that that's 20 years, is it between you and me? Like but 15, 
15. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, so I, I look at this and I'm like, I see the benefit of both sides following and unfollowing for me, for me, like it came to a point of like, I do sense I have an obligation as a public figure and as a pastor, but that obligation is now just going to be me sharing and people who are friends with me can see that and can choose to engage me in the comments there. And I will engage in the comments when they comment, Yeah. but I'm not going to engage in their posts. And part of that was it might be nine o'clock at night or even at the start of the day or in the middle of the day. And I pull up Facebook and before I know it, and I'm just trying to make a church post on Facebook. Does that make sense? Wait, right. or, or respond to a church thing that's happening on Facebook. Um, and all of a sudden I go down a rabbit trail and it's an hour and a half, two hours later. And I've, I've accomplished nothing. Right. But look, I had this difficult conversation with this person, which I'm not saying there's no redemption in that or that those moments aren't redeemable. But I found that changing someone's mind on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram is for most, in my experience, most of the time is, uh, it'd be kind to call it an uphill battle. Like I would say you're, you're, you're going uphill with a lot of luggage and, mm -hmm. and hoping that you might actually make it to the top. I, I've sensed that in-person conversations are so much better Right. But they're so much harder um, because you just don't get as many of those opportunities. And because people will say things very different on social media than they will in person. Uh, they're, they'll oh, tame, yeah. they'll tame everything. The, the bravado that you can put on social media and the bravado that you put when you're sitting in a room with somebody, very different. And, um, and so I've, I've chosen to try to have some of those necessary conversations in person when able and, and again, for me, it was a decision more about me than about like a, a, a conscious decision on how to lead. It was more about like, I literally can't be angry when I like am trying to go to bed about this thing <laughs> that this person said that truthfully, when I really examine this in a couple of days, I'm going to say, yeah, that should have frustrated you. They said kids in cages wasn't a big deal. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like they said something like that and you're just like, and, and for me, it was like, oh my gosh, that I can't handle this. Like, you know, I have to have this conversation with them. And I think I've just learned like, I don't have to have that conversation with them. I, I don't have to have it on their terms on that platform. At least it's not healthy for me to have it on their terms on that platform. That doesn't have to be everybody's conclusion. That's just been my conclusion. And, and the problem for me was the reason, and the reason I did the unfollow, which by the way, some of you are hurt by that. Maybe hearing this right now, I'm friends with you and you're not following me. Well, if you're on Instagram, I'm following you. I have I don't unfollow people on Instagram. So friend me on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, again, a happier place, or at least it was. Uh, but, but it used to be that I would see something and I would choose not to say something, but then it would just stir in me for hours and hours and hours. And that wasn't helpful either. You right. know what I mean? And that, that's right. why I made that decision. It's so hard, man. Social media, because social media is, is so connected to this church and state stuff too, because as a pastor, I'll see my own congregants say things that I'm like, what are you saying? You don't really believe that. Like you don't, 
you don't want us to structure like that. You no way. Like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, and that's, yeah, that's difficult. I don't know. Well, and I don't, I don't scroll through the Facebook feed. I'll post my smart stuff about the, the podcast or a, what, just some thoughts, but yeah, I, do, I, I rarely scroll through because yeah, the reason I like Instagram was cause it's like, I want to see your, uh, I want to see what's happening in your life, you know, and that tended to be what things used to be on Instagram and it's getting further and further away from that, you know, but yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. They, we, they are a part of our reality and I don't think they're going away anytime soon. I think, again, it comes back to figuring out a way to be, yeah, to use logic, you know, you said critical thinking, to use logic and to use patience and self-control and kindness as we consider the things we post. And I'm not great at that, you know, I'm on Twitter and there's stuff that I'll put on there around that just kind of snarky and just like, yeah. I'm not going to delete it because that was me in the moment. And that's going to be, that's going to be a record, you know, but just trying to be kind. Right. And uh, yeah. 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 And I think that, uh, yeah. and you can't, you can't, the problem is, is you can't take a platform like Twitter and Facebook and remove emotion. Right. And, um, and emotion is not always rational. Right. And so there's this picture of like fact checking also, people are not rational all the time. There's sarcasm, there's snarkiness there's and, and quite honestly that's what to me is like <laughs> at least about twitter what was so interesting about it at least at the start when it was 140 characters the negative of 140 characters is you cannot have a meaningful conversation in 140 40 characters it's why we see all these posts now that are like one of 10 and they oh, just right. keep rolling and you're just on, like man. oh my god why don't you just write a blog and give me the that's link right like <laughs> like but like, but like now it's 280 characters. I'm told I haven't even been on the platform since it switched to 280. Um, oh my! But uh, yeah, are you not on Twitter? I heard. I heard. I, I think. I think it went to 280. No, no, I'm surprised. I mean, you haven't been like, on Twitter. That's a long time ago. <laughs> no, I. I. Well, let me tell you this. I was what? Like, I think if I go and look at my account, I was one of the first like thousands to get on Twitter. I got a message like when I was in college. This is 2005, maybe or 2006. Like this was way back. Um, mm. and, and it was like Twitter, this new platform you should get on. And I logged on, like probably gave him my MySpace email. Like, and you know what I mean? And, I'm like, <laughs> and, and I logged on and I got an account and I was like, no one's here. <laughs> and then I just left, but I have Justin Douglas because I was yeah. on way back there, which right. like on all my other platforms, I have to be pastor Justin Douglas because Justin Douglas is taken because right. it's a two popular, pretty popular names. Right. So like, I, it's just so funny because it's like, I was like off it for like four years and then it kind of picked up steam and blew up. And then I was on it for a while. And, and, um, and now like, I just, I just push from my Instagram, everything that goes there. I'm sure if, I'm sure if someone started blowing up my Twitter, I'd probably get an email that would be like, Hey, you've got five comments on this post. Go say something. You know what I mean? Maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe I right now. Turn all, I turn all those notifications no. off. I have like, <laughs> I could be dog, famous on Twitter and not even know it right now. Yeah, man. I'll check like, for you later. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, and I, and I say this just because it's like, it's like, that's to me, What's, what's interesting about that platform, at least in the early going, what I loved about Twitter and I had the app on my phone, I would check it regularly, is like, especially for comedy, like it was some of the best comedy because it was like one line punchline type comedy where you had to fit that comedy in 140 characters or that social commentary in 140 right. characters. And it and was like, precise. 
you and and well, what I would say is it required a certain amount of creativity. Mm-hmm. How can I fit this statement that I'm going to make in 140 characters? And to me, that was actually the beautiful thing about Twitter in the beginning is that it was almost this like new creative platform that was challenging the fact that you could write a whole note, a whole letter on Facebook. You know what I mean? The struggle is like we've learned now, and and obviously I have a long form podcast. We've been talking for over an hour now. Like if you're going to wrestle with ideas, doing it in 140 characters is about the worst way to wrestle with complex (laughs) nuanced ideas, right? Right. Like you need to have space. You need to talk about it. You need to have a back and forth um, that is long and not, not, you know, not compressed to 140 or 280. And even if you times that by 10, you still can't have the necessary, um, conversation. I don't think, you know, uh, uh, and it doesn't, it's not, it's not conducive for conversation. It's more conducive for, um, yeah. And, and shouting out people, shouting down people. Um, and this is one of the things I've been reflecting on a lot because we're in a moment right now. Like I would, I would venture to guess you acknowledge that we are in a cultural moment, potentially even civil rights 2.0, whether that's going to be linked back to Trayvon um, or whether that's going to be linked back to Ferguson. Um, I, 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 I tend to think it's going to be like in history, when we look 50 years beyond Trayvon's going to kind of be this beginning of, and Ferguson, and then this, and who knows what's next, that's going to be these catalytic moments for change, that's going to get us to wherever the next thing is. But like, one thing I've been praying about and wrestling about as a pastor, especially, is like, are we calling people in? Or are we calling people out? Because these are two different things. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's one of the things I think that, that, that led me away from the platform of Twitter is I felt like it was just, we're calling people out and don't get me wrong. There are certain brands and I'm a part of one CrossFit that, that need to be called out. Like, I don't know how much you know about the CrossFit brand and what's going on. Um, and I'm, you know, I have a lot invested in CrossFit, man. It's changed my life. Um, and I, this has been a hard week for me because of those statements on CrossFit and, and seeing so much of that brand go up in smoke. But the truth is, is like everything great about CrossFit is bigger than the CEO. Like just like everything that's great about Jesus is bigger than your pastor and bigger than your denomination or bigger than whoever hurt you in the church and whoever said something terrible about you. But at the same time that has real consequences and it hurts. And, um, and I just think we need to be reflecting on like, are we calling people in or are we calling people out? Because I, I think as pastors, we have an obligation to definitely call out injustice. But we look different when we call out injustice because we're calling people into something. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, oh, yeah. I mean, I think of, you know, just being more of what are you for as opposed to what you're against. And I think that's part of, that's been part of people's, um, the defection from white evangelicalism is just that, well, I'm tired of what we're against, you know, what are we for? Right. And I think that, you know, I think like the SBC just had their, I guess maybe it was an online meeting or they're going to have their online meeting this year because they can't meet. And they've lost a million something members in the last couple of years, right? And that's a, one of the biggest denominations in the country. And I think it does. It boils down to P 
people are growing out of church, right? I mean, either they grow, grew up in it and it didn't really do anything for them, or they're just kind of tired of all the stuff that all the baggage that goes with it just by saying that you're a white evangelical. Um, and so I think declaring what we're for in a positive sense is a lot better than saying what we're against. Certainly. And then, and then the also, also the other thing that I think of that comes back to, I mean, I heard this year, years ago, this guy, one of the, one of the pastors that was a pastor at one of the churches I served at gave a sermon. He wasn't the regular pastor, but he was just one of them. He's like, I go jogging and I see somebody coming down the road and they look like they're struggling, you know, <laughs> maybe they're a little overweight or whatever. And you're like, I don't know, but I, I don't judge that person because I don't know how far they've gone or how far they're going. Mm. And I think that that just stuck with me. And that was probably 20 years ago. You know, I, I don't know how far they've come and I don't know how far they're going, mm. but I want to, I want to cheer them on because I don't know their situation. And so I think we need to have a lot more of that in the way we think about these things. Um, because we do have people that have made mistakes and have done stupid things and have, but they've been remorseful for them, truly remorseful, not just some kind of half-handed apology, but really did something not good and then tried to make amends for it and try to be better. And instead of just saying, yeah, no, we're done with you, maybe give them a chance to show that there's a reconciliation and a redemption at hand. Yeah. Impossible. Like, because I think it is possible for some of these, um, some of these, bad actors and people that have kind of propped up different systems that are unhealthy. I think there's an opportunity for them to change, but I think we need some change from without and some change with, from within. Yeah. And that's true of the church. That's true of how we do government and politics. Um, and so, and again, and it kind of circles back around to critical thinking and logic, you know, does it make sense to do this? Or does it make sense to do this and kind of go, okay, well, what's, what, let's get some wisdom here as opposed to just putting my finger up in the air with a licking my finger and putting up the air to get a, get a sense of where the vibe's going mm. instead of saying, okay, what, what can be best for everybody in this situation? How can we make it a win for everybody that's involved here? You know, how can we retrain some of these guys that don't even, that didn't know better, you know, two of those cops that were with, uh, with, um, Chauvin, yeah. When he was when he was um, had his knee on the neck, two of them. One of the guys had been on the job for like four days. And the other guy had been that was his third shift, I think. And those all of the four guys that were arrested for it. Really, I didn't. And know you're that. just like, oh, there's something systemically wrong with that because that guy is able to do that, and these guys don't know what to do about it, right? Yeah, and so that just kind of shows me that there's something broken within that system and it's, it's broken human beings. Right? It's people that don't know how to have a conversation. Like yeah, you're talking it, about. It's broken human beings that have also enacted broken policies. Right. And that's right. the, that's the struggle. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I think, I think the hard thing is, is like, we love a systematic one size fits all approach to this. 
I here, here's a great example. You know what? I'm just going to go into this. Not that you and I as two white males are the ones to have the conversation on race. Okay. Cause we're not, and I'm just going to say that. So we're speaking to Thank white you. people and I would prefer that, um, that anyone who has an opinion on this, shoot me an email and I'll have you on the podcast. Let's have that conversation. Um, but I'll speak from just my lens about two white guys. Okay. Drew Brees has been singing the same song forever, which is don't kneel during the national anthem. My grandfather fought for this country. I have a deep respect for the flag and that's disrespectful. Okay. He said that for years, ever since cap took a knee for the first time, he got on a interview I think it was Yahoo Business, like of all the places for this to break. (laughs) It's Yahoo Business. And he just said, he wasn't even really asked about that. Like, it's not like, what do you think about cap protesting? Like that, the the questioning wasn't even like trying to trap him. He just went into, I've always said this, not aware of the moment. um, And realized really quick, the goalposts had moved. Mm -hmm. And what he said was no longer okay mm-hmm. to the point where he had players on his own team, which is rare in the NFL, call out a quarterback, especially an, an NFL Hall of Fame quarterback who's maybe even you could argue statistically on the Mount Rushmore of quarterbacks. Well, okay. and he's done great stuff for his, oh, his city. He's right? done phenomenal things yeah. for the community. He's, right. he's, he's active in, 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 in action, action in his community. Here's the deal. That happens to Breeze. Breeze is like, what? And I'm going to assume what's happening behind the scenes. Breeze is like, what just happened? I said what I've always said. Like, th- th- this never happened before. Collective conscience has changed. Mm-hmm. And through that, Breeze saw something differently that he's seen the same way for four years. Right. He apologized. Right. And look, it's up to you whether you want to receive Drew Breeze's apology, but I receive it 100%. Here's why I receive it hundred percent because I know Drew Brees is doing good work. Like it, it really seems like he's, he's doing good work. And I also know Drew Brees is ignorant of his white privilege. He doesn't know. He just doesn't know. And, and, and the truth is, is like, you think about what it takes to get to Drew Brees's position in, in, in football. It's like that dude has had privilege around him since probably in high school as a freshman throwing a football. He knows nothing probably but privilege to a certain extent, right? And that's not – I don't know Drew Brees' story. All I'm trying well, to say is – I, I can speak to that a little bit because the church that I served at in Austin was right down the street from Westlake High School where he went to high school. Really? Oh, wow. And that area is, yeah, one of the wealthiest places in the state, I would say. And so, wow. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a, so there's I'm a not bit wrong. of a bubble. No, I'm no. not wrong. Okay. No. It, it, it's either he was either at Westlake High School or Lake Travis, and both are on par. So, so they were in, in, in the Austin area. And I think it was Westlake High School. Yeah. My, my point is, is that he's probably had an upbringing and an experience that has insulated him at an early age from these conversations and from the realities of the Black experience. And then as he's had Black teammates – because of his position and stature, he's always been the leader. He's never had to follow. Mm-hmm. And, and so he's never had to see a different perspective. Now, I'm not going to say never. He hasn't had to wrestle with the reality of a different perspective in our world. 
Like I, there was a CrossFit coach who came out and said, I did not know racism was still in America. Hmm. I am appalled as I've looked back at the last week and talked to members of my gym that are from the African-American community. I had no idea this was still a thing. I talked to this member and here's the story they shared about what it's like to get stopped by police. Here's the story they shared about what it's like for their kid to just walk through a store and get followed by somebody because they think they're going to steal. I did not know these stories were going on and I failed as a leader in the community. Like that's what he said. And I was like, look, you as a coach have my, and as an owner of a CrossFit gym, like have my 100% respect because not only did you own that you missed it, but like you apologize for it. You owned your ignorance and you're trying to get educated. That's what I felt like Breeze did. I felt like Breeze owned his ignorance and, 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 and committed to getting better. Now let's look at another white guy. And, and I'm going to put CrossFit on blast right now, even though I'm highly invested in CrossFit um, because I am, I, I have, I, I'm a, I'm a CrossFit coach. I'm an instructor. I've, I've paid money to get my certification through CrossFit. So I'm certified through CrossFit to coach. Greg Glassman has come across in our community for the longest time as somebody who is above reproach. He can say whatever he wants and no one there's, well, not above reproach, above accountability. Um, no yeah. one, no one will hold him accountable and no one will say what needs to be said when he does things that are just completely out there. And part of that is what's been good about Glassman. I'll, I'll say this to give him some credit. He's a little bit of a mad scientist. That's what kind of brought about CrossFit, like this sure. new methodology of fitness. It was him kind of in the lab, throwing things together and and doing the study. And there's no doubt that what he's brought about is beautiful and life-changing. And for me personally, I started CrossFit at 285 pounds. Like I was grossly out of shape, couldn't even do a pull-up. And now I'm fairly fit. Like I still have a long way to go in my goals and my goals are always changing. But the point is, is like where I was then and where I am now, my longevity of life and my longevity even in ministry um, is, is so much greater. So I have a ton that I owe to CrossFit. When I think about the quality of life and the longevity of my life, because I've gotten healthy through that. What happened this week with CrossFit is so disheartening because they missed an opportunity. They had an opportunity to really step up with everything going on right now and own the fact that CrossFit has a diversity problem. They have a diversity problem because CrossFit's expensive and poor communities really can't participate. And actually, that's part of the reason I'm a coach is because I couldn't afford CrossFit, but what I could do was put the down payment on getting an L1 so that I could then coach at my gym to work out at my gym. Does that make sense? Like that, 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 that the cost of coaching would be the offset to allow me to be at the gym. Like right. that's, I, I made that investment. Does that make sense to, mm -hmm. to be able to say like, I know I can't sustain this level of, of, you know, monthly cost. Um, and, and so, so I say that to say, CrossFit has a problem in reaching poor communities. They had an opportunity to go like build gyms in poor communities, serve underprivileged. They could have worked with their sponsors to do that. Instead, Glassman was like, we're not making a comment. We're not making a comment. And then emailed somebody a terrible email and then also wrote Floyd 19 on a comment. And whether you want to call it pithy and whatever. And then 
it, reports come out that he was on a Zoom call, and this is confirmed by multiple people, and he right. said he has no sympathy for George Floyd. And he said that multiple times on the Zoom call. And, you're, and then, like, all of a sudden, you just see an avalanche of, like, cancel CrossFit. In my mind, they deserve, he deserves every bit of it because he's put no accountability structures in place for the brand. No one's coming to fire him because there's no one to fire him. He just, he's not, he doesn't answer to a board. He, he owns the brand and he's going to do what he wants to do with it. And then he apologizes and his apology is, I apologize for what I said. I understand it's hurtful, but here's why I said it. And you're just like, (laughs) you're just like, you're just like, what are you doing? Like, Mm. what are you doing? And, and I think these are two great microcosms because for me, Greg Glassman needs to be called out like a hundred percent. He just, he still needs to be called out because he hasn't owned the fact that he was wrong. Like he's justified it within his apology. Drew Brees, you can cancel Drew Brees and burn his Jersey but what are you really doing? You're missing an opportunity to call him in. Like he's open to change. He's open to a, to transformation. He's, and I think this is where like the church can really reclaim the word repentance. Like this is a great time to reclaim that word. And also like the road to reconciliation. Cause I think for, for Drew Brees, there's going to be a road to reconciling. Like it's not just, it, these things should not just happen overnight. It's more than a Instagram post just like it's more than an Instagram post to post that you're with Black Lives Matter. Like, what does that mean? Are you going to do something? Are you going to be active in, in, the, in the things in which that will bring justice to the Black community? Like, it's so deep. But for me, I'm very interested in cancel culture because, and, and tell me what you think about this as a pastor. The story of Zacchaeus, or, of, of Zacchaeus is an interesting story to me. Because Jesus walks into a town, there's this guy standing in a tree. He's high, he's he's in the tree because he's small, he's short, he can't see whatever. And he walks in, and Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Tax collectors most hated in the culture at the time. Jesus says, "Hey, Zacchaeus." And he's like, oh, "You know my name?" Like, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's how it went. And uh, <laughs> and and uh, I, I'm not. I'm, this is this is the Justin Douglas uh, 2020 version of the Bible. And so <laughs> so Zacchaeus is like, "You know my name? How do you know my name?" Uh, and uh, and Jesus Jesus is like, "I want to come to your house and eat." And what we don't recognize is that all the people who are in positions of privilege in that culture would have been the places that Jesus would have already had invitations to go eat at. Like, like Jesus would have been lined up to eat anywhere he wanted to eat with a Pharisee, with a Sadducee. Like there would have been a lot of people in that culture who were again, positions of privilege. And Jesus chooses the tax collector to go eat with him. You and I might be in the crowd at that time and say, what the hell are you doing? Jesus, Mm. you're about to go eat a meal that was paid for by him extorting me. You're about to go sit on furniture that he, that he bought because he extorted my brother or my sister or my friend, my neighbor. How could you support that? You need to cancel that. And Jesus goes, no, I need to sit down and have a meal with that. I need to sit down and have a human moment with that. And that to me is important for us to remember as followers of Jesus amid cancel culture is that Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus reminds us that we, we should be cautious to cancel people, but we should also call people out because Jesus has this rich young ruler who comes to him and he's like, Jesus, you seem pretty cool. I want to follow you. 
And then he's like, well, if you want to sell everything and come follow me, let's do this. And he's like, well, I'm not going to sell everything. That's not that, that. And Jesus is like, okay, can't follow me if you can't sell everything. Like, and it's like, you could call that a certain level of cancel culture. Jesus is saying, this is the cost. Come follow me. Um, and in essence, until he handles that, he can't follow him. Um, I don't know that that's as one for one as cancel culture, but I do think the Zacchaeus story is cancel culture. Like Jesus, it would be fair to say that a lot of people in that culture would, would have a deep struggle and problem with Jesus having dinner with Zacchaeus. I don't know. Have you ever thought about that story that way? Not, not really. I do think about cancel culture a lot though, because I think that's, that's the reality of our 20 somethings right now. And I just keep thinking, okay, we've got to, we've got to give space for true repentance and redemption and reconciliation um, because people make mistakes. I make mistakes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it's the worst in matters of language. That's the thing that bugs me the most is when someone gets canceled because they use the wrong word or, and, and look, I'm not right. trying to say that they use the wrong word. Like they said the N word I'm saying like they, they had the wrong pronoun and this is just something they've always done and right. they're on autopilot. Does that make sense? Right. And, Absolutely. and, and they, they apologize for it, but there's no sympathy for the apology. And it's like, you got to give people space and time to transform. Transformation doesn't happen overnight. And I'm cautious because I'm also like, I have a difficult time telling black friends, you got to give people time to transform. Oh, <laughs> they're like, right. oh, right. they're like yeah. well, how long do that's we have to wait? That's not your lane, Justin. Like, I know that's not my lane to tell you what, <laughs> how long we got to wait. Like, so I'm also sensitive to people saying, well, why do I have to wait? Like, and so, so I'm sensitive to both sides is what I guess I'm trying to say, but go ahead. Right. Well, yeah, I saw something the other day. It, there was, there were, it was an old interview with Tupac Shakur and he, his whole thing was, it was, and it was kind of, Right around, it was a little after the Rodney King episode, and he was he was just saying, you know, we're tired of waiting, you know, and that was 94, 90, yeah, 93, 94. Yeah, he said that, and he's like, we're just we're tired of waiting, and um, so that was I, I just kind of think about that, and it's like, yeah, I kind of think I don't blame you for not wanting to wait anymore, but I also, but I don't want to do a but but if. But I, but I am, I don't know, somebody, my, I, is either my wife, wife or my daughter sent me something the other day. It was 10 things you didn't know were racist. 10 phrases that you didn't know were racist. And I think I them, saw this. I think I saw and this. And I was like, grandfather clause? I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't know either. Another one was the peanut gallery. You yep. know? And I'll yep. say that. I'll say that to my kid. You know, hey, no commenting from the peanut gallery over there. I was like, oh, man. Yeah, and there was I, like. Yeah, there Three was like four on here that I'm like, I had no idea. <laughs> I read the oh, same thing yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh and so I don't know. And I I like to think of myself as fairly informed. I'm far from woke, but I <laughs> want to, you know, ha have good perspective on all these things and not be closed off to whatever is happening within the culture. But I also have to kind of keep coming back to, okay, again, I keep saying this, but coming back to, Jesus and who Jesus is and who he was and what he represented. And sometimes that jives with, I probably shouldn't even say jives. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Right. I'm just like, Oh, but you could torture yourself over all of your words. Um, but what's in your heart and what are you trying to, yeah. you know, what are, what kind of person are you trying to be in the world? And so 
I go, I, if I can continue to go back to Jesus, then there's going to be people on either side of an issue that are not going to see Jesus from the same frame of reference that I'm going to see him from. And maybe they don't want to see him at all because of what people like me have done down through the years. And that hurt, that hurts me because I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that person's stumbling block. I don't want to be that person's reason for not believing that Jesus is who he said he was and that he is the source of all things and he's truth and he's love uh, and he's good. And um, so my words are going to get me in trouble sometimes and his words are problematic for people too. And I, I just want to make sure that I'm representing him the best way that I can and sometimes that's done by not saying anything at all and sometimes it is done by acting in a way that stands with people who are in trouble and who are hurting and who are left by the side of the road yeah that's really good i mean that's i think there's just so much right now that like we're we just ended a series on Joseph at the Belong Collective and um which was really good. Like I I enjoyed it from the standpoint of like once coronavirus kind of hit, like I wanted a, a story that we could journey through together that was deep and had a lot of different themes, but ultimately was the picture of God's faithfulness in the valleys, you know what I mean? And ultimately um, God journeying alongside of us in the most depressing moments of life, because for a lot of people, uh, this pandemic has been that, you know? Um, and, and I think that that series served well. And now I'm, I, I'm currently, it's, <laughs> it's already Tuesday and I don't have a plan for Sunday yet. Like, I don't know what series we're going to be in, uh, this coming, you know, Sunday. And for people, you know, listening, it's the 9th of June. I don't know when this podcast will actually come out, but, um, but, but like, but if you don't uh, have a plan by July, you're in trouble, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, am I going to do another sermon series? Am I going to do one-offs? But I'm just like, literally almost every story of Jesus right now has a contextual application to where we are right now as a culture and as a society. Like, I'm like, well, I could talk about this. Oh yeah, that would totally work. I could talk about that would work. That this would work. That would work. And it's like the stories of Jesus. That's, that's the one thing that kind of brings me back is like right now, all of these stories of Jesus and diving into them through our lens of our context right now in this moment, um, I'm just, I'm thankful that so much of what we're dealing with, the gospels are not quiet about. Does that make sense? It's not right. like, it's not like, well, I wonder what Jesus thinks about that. Like, it's like, no, these were talked about. These are, they, they're, there's some one for one examples here. Like we can go look at how, how Jesus included the Samaritans and, uh, and how, how the Samaritans were hated by the Jews, like, you know what I mean? And how he reveals himself for the first time as the Messiah to a woman at a well and how he champions a Samaritan in a story, um, which was really less about roadside service and more about who do we hate? Like we can, we can, we can, we can talk about these things from a Jesus perspective and point to Jesus while we also champion 
the change of hearts. Does that make sense? Instead of just getting up and saying, change your heart, we can be like, change your heart because Jesus compels you to like, and that I think is the role of pastors right now, which is hard. You know what I mean? Um, well, and the, the amazing thing is like, that's always been true, Justin, whether it was in the sixties or in the forties or yesterday, there's always been, Jesus has always had a relevant, had something relevant to say to our time and place. Yeah. But, it, but it was up to us to help reveal that in yeah. some ways. Um, because That's again, we look at it through the way, I mean, I look at it as a white, fairly privileged, educated guy who has not had a lot of hardship in his life. And so I, I look at it a different perspective than James Cone did growing mm-hmm. up in the South in Jim Crow era. Right. And so yeah. we, we all are going to have different perspectives on these things, but I think we need to learn from some of those other perspectives, but Jesus always had something relative, rele- relevant to say. And I think it's our job, our duty to always bring those things um, to light. You know, that's part of our, it's part of being a pastor, being a, whether you're a preacher or not, which I don't preach very often, but I still have an obligation to help people see who Jesus is and what he's doing, what he's doing in this moment, right? What he's, where he's shining light and where I can, where I can be a light. Yeah. So speaking of not preaching very much, if people want to find out about Koinos, what's your role there and, and, uh, and what's Koinos about? Sure. So, I'm at Coinos Community Church outside of Reading, Pennsylvania. I am, <laughs> it's interesting. I'm the pastor for community formation. So, which is kind of a le- weird way of saying I'm the executive or administrative pastor. It's a weird way of saying you do everything, right? No, that kind no, of- <laughs> no, 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 not at all. So I co-pastor, uh, my co-pastor is Tim Deal, and he yeah. does the bulk of the preaching. He does a community, community group stuff. He, um, he also is, he's very good pastorally. And so he takes, he, he does a good job of caring for our, our folks. Not that I don't care because I do care. Um, but I handle more of the financial things, the organizational uh, aspects of what we do. We have a tenant. And so I'm, I'm a landlord too, which is something I hadn't really been expecting to ever be in my life. But um, I do that. Um, I kind of operate our, I, I, I'm our staff. I, I, I run our staff. So we have like a, we have a children's pastor and a youth director. They're both very part-time, but they do excellent work for um, their part-time roles. And then all of our volunteers, most all of our volunteers kind of fall under my un- umbrella. Um, our church is, was planted uh, by some guys and gals from Lancaster County. Um, which is the adjacent county to Berks County. It's probably, I don't know, a little over 15 years ago. So about six guys and couples um, planted the church. And um, so it's it's still a fairly young church. Um, We do have senior citizens, but we have a lot of young families, uh, a lot of folks that maybe grew up in different traditions. Um, And a lot of our folks are not from Berks County. Like they came in from other places and stayed. So probably half and half, I would say it's not, I don't know. Um, that's kind of, it's a little bit about who we are. We, we've kind of stole our, um, 
our tagline from the biggest BIC church in the world, which is um, the meeting house in Canada. Yeah. It's a church for people who aren't into church. Um, yep. We kind of, we like to say, come as you are. Um, we have an opportunity for people to kind of not just, we try to act, we try to not come across like we've got it all figured out that we're on this journey together. We're asking questions. We're open to dialogue. We, um, yeah, we're wanting to journey together and it's, it's, it's relationally focused. I mean, that's our value anyway. We try, I mean, we all have values, right? And what, what are we trying to attain and what are we really like are not always the same thing, but we have a very relational type of ministry. Uh, we try to be authentic and, and, really being clear that we don't know all the answers, but we know Jesus and we're trying to um, make it through this life together in that. And it's a very, it's a very BIC type of focused church with those, yeah, those core values, of the BIC. That's awesome. And uh, you have a podcast, Obscure Pastor Podcast, which I was on. What, yeah. what episode number was that? I don't know. I'm putting oh, you on gosh, the spot. I'm sorry. It's, it's the, it's the most recent one as of now. I think. Yeah. Right? It came okay, out so today. Actually. Uh, came out 9th. today. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. It's like, it's, like, it's like we planned this. No, that, that part I did not. Um, so yeah, the obscure pastor podcast, I started that back in, I guess kind of January, March, just as something fun to do. I I've never been, famous pastor. I've known some famous pastors. I've known some famous leaders in ministry. Um, but I've also known a ton of people that are not famous that I think are awesome and are doing good work. And I love talking with them. So I just started recording some of those conversations. It's definitely formatted. It's about 30 minutes, um, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little bit shorter. Um, most of the people that I've had on are people that I've known known already, but I've had a couple of folks on that I didn't really know all that well, and that's that seems to be going okay as well. Um, but it's mostly to encourage people. Uh, it's not. Um, sometimes it can be controversial, but usually it's just to encourage other pastors, other people that are maybe volunteer ministry, or just just regular regular folks who mm -hmm. love church and want to be a part of um, just hearing those conversations, kind of what p pastors might struggle with, whether challenges that they face and how do they, um, how do they deal with those things? What inspires them? We ask some, I ask some, I say we like there's more than one of us doing this. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask them what their favorite musician is. I'll ask them to tell me something that people might not know about them. And then if they want to be followed, where do I follow them? So for you, that would be on your Instagram or do <laughs> this podcast. So yeah, no, that's uh, cool. it's fun. I like doing it. I'm, you know, I've got a few people that help me pay for some of the stuff that I do through Patreon. Um, yeah, and so that's that helps because it's just it, it it's meaningful for them for me to do it, but it's also it's a lot of fun for me to do, and I I enjoy doing it just kind of as a it's kind of become my hobby, I guess. I'm not, yeah. I don't have a lot of hobbies. I like to read a lot, and but I don't go fishing and I'm not a, you know, I don't know. So, no, skiing <laughs> no, I get it. Like that. I, I get it's, it. It's a lot of fun. So I enjoy doing it. It's the same for me, man. I, I, I love it. I, I, I think I started the Beyond Boundaries podcast in 2019, January of 2019, and I had already been banking 
podcasts in the fall and in the winter, just like starting to have conversations. And I think similar to you, it was like, I was having all these meaningful conversations over coffee or things. And I was like, man, I wish we could broaden that out and more people could be a part of that conversation. And like, have heard, had overheard this two hour long conversation, even though many of them would have like weave in and out of some confidential things. So it was like, I can't just record conversations that I'm having with people. Well, obviously I need to get the permission, but like, even if I got their permission, it would change the conversation. Like, you know, sure. and so it's like, how it do does. I, and, and, you know, with, with COVID I've had to explore, like we're interviewing right now and we're not in person, but it was actually like a high value initially. Like I'm only interviewing people in person because oh, there's wow. something about the energy of being in person with somebody. And so I would go set up all my podcast stuff in someone's like living room. Like many of the podcast episodes you've heard, like from the start, um, I, honestly, uh, up to episode 20 something, I hadn't done any remotely. Um, so uh, that's all I've done. So yeah, well, so, one. I had one. Yeah. So, so it's, so it's just a different for, for me, I, I think, you know, long form, we've been able to stay, you know, engaged through this entire conversation, but like in long form, sometimes being in someone's presence actually draws out, I don't know, some more of that humanness of the conversation. I don't know. It, it for me, it, it, that was meaningful, but obviously that's not possible right now, but it is such a hobby, but it's also such like, to me, like a, 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 a platform and medium of communication that can like invite people in. I know for me, some of the ideas that I now I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea that I initially was like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> I had to listen about it. I had to listen to other people on podcasts, talk it out multiple times before I like was like, okay, I think I see this now. I think I'm starting to understand the reasoning for that or the like, and so, or, or I'm starting to understand that that experience is not my experience, but I see how that experience could lead you to make these conclusions. Okay, that's helpful. Like, and, and I just feel like the podcast medium is that, whereas like the written word, you, you don't get the voice and the emotion and the context behind it as much, you know what I mean? Um, video obviously is really great, but it takes a lot of time to make a video. Like, and I don't know about you, but I know that right now because we're still in digital gatherings at the Belong Collective and like video week after week um, producing that has been, you know, challenging uh, in these times. Are you guys meeting in person again at Coinos? No. Are you guys back uh, to that yet? No. We do not. Um... So we're still in yellow phase. Yeah, I thought you might be. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been doing, we, we do Zoom for community groups. We have a live stream on Sundays. Gotcha. Were you doing YouTube. live stream before? Were you doing live stream before? No, or oh, not okay. at all. We, had, we would record the message and put it on a podcast. In audio form, but never in yeah. video probably, right? Yeah. So the live stream obviously is video now. Are you guys going to keep that once you go back, you think? We, we are. We're going to keep awesome. doing the live stream. We, you know, Tim and I are kind of talking through and we'll talk with our leadership team about kind of what our, our format is going to look like because it's going to look different because we are going to, our space, you know, we've got to, we got to figure out space. We got to figure out what people are going to be comfortable with and yep. all that type of stuff, what we're comfortable with. Um, Everyone's having these conversations right yeah, now and it's, so. it's unique to see. But I think that the, the thing that I hear you saying is like, we're going to keep this digital piece oh, yeah. that, that we've we'll explored that because, because that's the people. opportunity, you know, that's right. the opportunity in the midst of this is like, wow, that's an opportunity to grow. So many right. churches were pushed into digital spaces that they had never considered. So I saw so many churches 
create Facebook pages and Instagrams and things. I'm like, oh, cool. You're on Instagram now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> All yeah. right. I guess nothing like a pandemic to get you on Instagram. Right. <laughs> but I mean, Well, yeah. And we had, we had like a YouTube channel that we would put videos on occasionally, but they were primarily just so we could have like an archive. Right? Yeah. 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 And so we had Instagram, we have a pretty decent, we have a fairly engaged Facebook page. And so we were, we had the social media stuff. It just is a matter of trying to figure out what works, what's going to be helpful. And so we've had a lot of conversations about, What's going to help our folks not just navigate COVID and um, all the other things that are happening in life right now, but what's going to help make help them be better disciples? What's going to help us be better pastors? And so those are the types of conversations we try to have. Is just how can we do that? How can we do this? Not polished necessarily, but yeah, how can we do that so people are going to continue to learn and grow and be more like Jesus? And what's the best way to do that? And those questions are hard to answer because there's not a lot of people that are doing that. I, I, there's people that are doing it, but it's like, are they doing it? Well, do we have enough? You know, it's kind of like them trying to find a vaccine for COVID. It's like, you got to test it a whole lot and see what actually does mm. work, you know, and we're, we're, yeah. we're not going to know for a while whether this is working because discipleship is a long-term process. It's not a, it's not an overnight thing. So. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's so, I mean, that that's so much of what I think a lot of churches are going to have to, to wrestle with as we come out of yellow, at least speaking in Pennsylvania, as we come out of yellow into green, it's like, we can meet again, but like, we can't leave our most vulnerable behind. Like we right. have to have a plan for engaging them and, and discipling in this season of distance and all of that. It's so, it's such a challenge, but at the same time, amid any challenge, there's an opportunity. And I think good leaders are going to find the opportunity within the challenge and try to try to make the most of what is a awful situation. You know what I mean? Try to figure out how to elevate the gospel amid a pandemic, which is difficult. And then amid the realities of the aftermath of it. And uh, right. yeah. Well, and I think the church was due for some shaking up anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that this, it's, it's not all bad. I mean, do we need churches with 20,000 members showing up? On it's a, a good question. Service? It's a good question. We, you know, do we need a bunch of tiny little churches that aren't making disciples? You know, it's not just the big churches. It's the little ones that really aren't doing the world much good. Um, and so you said I think, it, I didn't. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but there, there's, a, there's a winnowing that can occur in this time that could be that could be good. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of people are not going to come back, you know, yeah. they just won't. And I'm not speaking for my church specifically, but I know that there's people that are like, eh, you know, I, there's some pretty good preaching out here. I kind of like staying in my PJs and I can watch it on demand now. And, you know, that, it's the new Netflix. Yeah. It's it, and probably not as good as a lot of stuff that's on Netflix. And so yeah. that's, that's the challenge. And I think, yeah, we're just, I'm going to, I'm just, it's really given me a, a, a chance to kind of rethink how we do ministry and what, I mean, I've been in this since 95, 96, and I've got probably, I'm not ever going to be real retired because I'm a pastor and I don't have any money, but so I'm going to be 80 <laughs> still doing this. What am I going to do for the next 30 years? You know, what's it going to look like? And I want to stay in this because I feel like this is the, 
this is what God's called me to do. Yeah. But I do have to kind of, uh, you always have to kind of look at well, what's God trying to do right now and how can I be a part of what God's doing? Yeah. And no, that's good. What does that, what does that mean? That's why we, I mean, you got to keep learning and doing stuff. You can't just stay where you are necessarily. So 100%. Well, obscurepastor.com, right? If they want to find out more about it, they can yep. also find it on Apple podcasts, on Spotify, yep. on, anywhere yep. podcasts are, right? Because I, I, I follow I, you. I, think so i know the most spotify and apple and i've used buzzsprout and i think that kind of helps push it out or whatever but um yeah obscurepastor.com i do a weekly email you can sign up for it there i um yeah on social media i'm drew carpenter at instagram that's where i that's kind of my most active place that i am although i'm not super active but well, I'm we learned, there. That's what we I learned. You're still, we learned you're still on Facebook and you haven't unfollowed everyone. So that's right. I'm <laughs> I think I'm, I think I'm the Andrew Carpenter on Facebook. The Andrew Carpenter. I like the it. Andrew I like Carpenter. it. <laughs> well, good deal. Andrew Carpenter, baseball player back <laughs> exactly. in the early 2000s. It, was, was he, was he Cardinals? Cardinals? Am I right? Uh, there's a Carpenter. There's a really good pitcher. that was a Carpenter for the Cardinals. Oh. I think Andrew Carpenter. Uh, I don't know. You're probably right. You're probably right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he might have been. He might have been. He might have played for the Phillies. Andrew Carpenter. Andrew Carpenter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. My, I, yeah. There's so many I, baseball I, players. I, I it's followed, hard to remember. Yeah, I followed baseball in and out over the years, and I'm kind of like, okay, we're not going to have a season this year. So, and the Astros were my team, and have they decided that they're not going to have a? Have they decided they're not going to have a season for real now? Or do, have, no, have I don't they, know. Uh, yeah, it just seems like we're not going to have a season. But yeah, it seems like it. But. Wow. Well, hey, and, and Drew, thank you so much for being on. And um, and please, people, go listen to the Obscure Podcast, uh, the Obscure Pastor Podcast. And um, and uh, again, I was one of the guests. If you want to go listen to that episode, you've probably heard my voice enough, though. So go listen to one of the other ones. Um, but I've, it was I follow the consolidated that. Justin Douglas, though. Yeah, exactly. The consolidated Justin Douglas. So good luck with that. Um, good luck consolidating me. I'm sure that that's probably why it's coming out now. It took so long to edit. But yeah, go go follow, go listen to that podcast. It's one of it's one of my podcasts that I listen to. So I thank you for it. And uh, and I'm just looking forward to to uh, to all that you're doing at Coinos and and all that you're doing with the podcast. And thanks for being on and talking about some tough stuff. I don't know that we solved anything about no. these things but i think we began a conversation and, and and honestly i just want to be clear that's the goal like i i hope whoever's here listening to this like i i don't want this podcast and i don't think drew's desire for his podcast or even his time on this podcast to be the final word like Heck no. really really hopefully you you feel like oh i've never thought about that or let me think more about that let me go find some more about that you, we want you to critically think the things think through the things that we've said just as much as you would anyone else and so um so we just we just have some some experience in some areas and then some things that we talk about that we don't have experience in and so so uh, thanks for listening and uh and uh yeah thanks again drew for being on thanks justin i appreciate it